The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, wipe off your glasses to make your specs sharp, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 570 with guest Kevin Hazard, recorded live Tuesday, June 22nd, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web Applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who actually thought that opening joke would be funny, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard. Richard and Carl, however you way you slice it, it comes up .NET goodness. Nice. .NETty goodness. .NETty goodness. Dude, I have terrible news. What? My big green egg is broken. <laughs> wow. That I, sucks. <laughs> hey, you know what? You liked the ribs that came out of that big green egg. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Well, it took a little topple yesterday, and 150 pounds of ceramic is now 150 pounds of rubble. Well, that's what happens when, you know, people aren't watching what's plugged in and what's not plugged in and they pick up pick it up and walk away with it. Just pulled yeah, pulled them presume the wheels would roll nicely and it off it went. So there you go. I'll get a new one later this week. Well, you know, you you're the barbecue man of Canada. You should do your own podcast on barbecue or something. Funny you should suggest that, my friend. Oh really? <laughs> You're doing a barbecue podcast. Oh, uh, we're working on it. I, I I hope to uh to be publishing later this year, I think. We're we're pretty close now to what we want. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah, well, you know, a barbecue is a big chunk of my life these days. That's as crazy as a hundred pound magnet in Norway. Who would do that? Who would do that? I don't understand. Hey, let's get into Better Know Framework. All right. Better Know Framework, of course, is a little section I do where I shine a little light on the dark corner of the .NET Framework. But today, I thought I'd do something else. Ooh. You know, it's really all about just being informative and keeping up with stuff that's going on, right? Yep. So I thought I'd look out on CodePlex and see what people are downloading. Turns out the number one download on CodePlex.com, hmm? the WBFS Manager. WBFS. What does that stand for? That stands for We Backup File System. File system developed by We Homebrew Coders. Uh, don't even ask me to. This is I'm reading from Wikipedia here. Uh, Quirk with three or two eyes and Wani Coco. He uses Wani Coco's DOS, and you really got to read this because the the characters and spelling are absolutely crazy. And works by creating a WBFS partition on an SD or USB device. Hmm. A Wii Homebrew application may then be run to dump a Wii game to the partition. The titles may be then launched using a Wii USB loader, which uses the DOS and USB 2.0 to load games from an external device. So, there's a WBFS manager on CodePlex that basically provides a GUI for working with hard disk drives that have been formatted to that 
file system. So you can list games with titles, sizes, and codes, drag and drop support for adding multiple files at once to a WBFS drive. It's an easy-to-use interface, which also reports available total and used disk space at a glance, batch processing, renaming disks, multilingual support, blah, blah, blah. So you This know, is the most popular project on Coplex. Well, it is today. It's it the, is today. Yeah. I see. So obviously it must have had a major update or something, and now it's just yep. rocking along. The most downloaded – there's a most downloaded list, right, on Codeplex? Right. And this one has had 52,398 uh, downloads. That's wow. the most downloaded project. The Wii backup file system. Yeah. There you go. All right. Yeah, well, okay. That's totally random, man. You, it is you random. blow my mind. You know, I just thought I'd just drop that little nugget in there for you. Just so leave me hanging. Who's talking to us? I have an email about 565. Okay. Hey, guys. I just listened to show 565 about Azure and Amazon Cloud Solutions. As a developer who is looking at the cloud, this episode was a great source of information. I truly understand the IT aspects of both solutions. I think you guys did a great job of laying out the pros and cons of both solutions. However, I would love to hear more on the developer story for both solutions. What are the tools available for development? How easy is development? Are there multiple staging areas for production and testing and so on? And what resources have we got for developers in terms of Windows services, etc.? Keep on rocking, and I can't wait for three days of .NET Rocks. I'll be listening to it the whole weekend. That's right. If you go to .NET Rocks.com this weekend, we're going to have so many guests. We're going to be broadcasting to your cell phone and your desktop live for three days straight. and Actually, four days if you count the repeats. And right. get this. My band, Salvo, we're going to play live on Monday night. Nice. Yeah. So the last slot on Monday night, we we don't have it filled. So at 9.30, we're going to take – from 9 to 9.30, there's going to be a break. At 9.30, the band's going to play. And Excellent. we're going to play till whenever. Till you've had enough. Yeah. That'll, that's, so you're ringing out the uh, the live weekend with yeah. the band. True radio. I mean, awesome. we're going to have a live band in the studio, and, and uh, it's going to be fun. It. Uh, let me close out this email. By the way, you guys should have .NET Rocks clothing for little kids – my wife and I just have a baby girl, and I'd love to have a .NET Rocks onesie to put on her. She'd be the envy of the hospital. I'd be like a .Pebble Rocks. <laughs> or .NET Pebbles. .NET Pebbles. Yeah. And that email's from Chuck Haynes in Front Royal, Virginia. And Chuck, thanks for your great email. We are uh, going to be working on all this stuff. I think there's some more shows about Azure and Amazon in our immediate future, so don't worry. And uh, we'll be sending you out... Uh, I don't know. Do we have any baby clothing? I'll see what I can find. I don't know. <laughs> we'll ship it out to you. And if you've got a question, a concern, an idea for a show, anything, send us an email, rocks at franklins.net. And uh, let's uh, introduce our guest, Kevin Hazard. Kevin is a C-sharp MVP who's totally hooked on Iron Python and F-sharp. He's also college professor teaching C++, C-sharp, and Python for the past 11 years. Uh, a total user group junkie, attending and speaking about 20 times per year from Boston to Atlanta and all points in between. He's manager and architect with CapTech Ventures, a consulting firm of 250-plus Java, .NET, BI, and database professionals based in Richmond, Virginia. Also the president of the Richmond Code Camp Planners Group, the president of the advisory board for the IT program in the School of Business at the college where he teaches, a founder of the Richmond Software Craftsmanship Group, a missionary serving in the U.S. and South America, and wow. father to five kids and one lovely wife. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, Carl. Hey, Richard. And also one of our key guys at the Richmond stop of the .NET Rocks road trip. Yep, absolutely. And thank you again for that, Kev. Oh, yeah, we had, we had a blast. That was great. Thanks. Thank you guys for coming. Oh, we had a great time. Yep, that was the uh, the Karen and Mark show. That's oh, right. Yeah. The Mark and Karen show. Fantastic. So we're talking about code contracts today, right? Yes, uh, that's the uh, the topic du jour. So are we talking about the Microsoft Research Code Contracts Project or a general code contracts, uh, what they are, or is it all wrapped uh, up? Code contract, uh, contracts in general, we can certainly talk about. Uh, the series that I've been blogging and speaking about a lot recently is uh, the research project, which actually has uh, gone beyond research now that they're 
um, the runtime portion of code contracts is in .NET 4. Ah, great. Wow. So it's, it's baked in. It's a product. So what is a code contract? What is a code contract? Well, I, I guess I'd sort of back up and ask, you know, what is code? Yeah, okay. Well, code is, is intent. It's uh, obligation. It's a, it, you know, code really is, is an expression of, of ideas and physical reality. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I think people like us are drawn into the software development space is that early on we probably had some experience where we, we built something and we were able to make a machine do something that we wanted. Right. And a, a little nugget of, uh, <clears throat> of ego went off and we said, wow, we can control the world around us by controlling this virtual world. So uh, code, in a sense, is, you know, is, is a depiction of reality in, in a smaller space. And it's total metaphor, right? It doesn't really exist. If you think about it, it really only exists in our minds. Right. But, but the contracts that, that we establish in the real world, simple contracts like, you know, if, uh, if I drive in this lane, you promise to drive in the other lane and not hit me on the highway, yeah. uh, are very real. Um, of course, if we code that into an algorithm, uh, we can choose not to be hit by the automo- automobile virtually. But in the, in the real world, you have these physical constraints. Right. So software doesn't do a lot of good unless it actually conforms to some of those physical or real-world constraints. So those are contracts. You know, contracts could be as simple as if I say, if I say that I'm going to accept an integer from you in this function, then uh, you sort of have to promise that you're going to give me an integer. Well, it sounds like a test. It sounds like a test uh, is a code contract. Um, a, a test could be, yeah, it could conceivably be a code contract, but the way it's sort of conveyed with respect to code contracts um, – in the in the product sense that that we're here to talk about is, um, you know, a, a contract between a caller of a function and a function that does something for you. So, if you say, for example, that you're going to pass a string to me, uh, let's say I'm the function, you're the caller, and I require a string. Today, in languages like C Sharp and Visual Basic .NET, you could pass me a null. And I have no way of conveying to you as the caller whether it's okay for you to pass me a null. So this goes beyond a mere interface. This is making sure that what is required is passed in at the data level, not just at the type level. Right. So, yeah, languages like C Sharp and Visual Basic, again, for example, do a great job of conveying um, the data types. But they don't really tell us a lot about, from a contractual perspective, what is the what are the allowable ranges of integers, for right. example, yeah. or if you give me an array of something with a, another parameter that's an index into that array, it should be a value that actually is a legal index in the array. Correct. Right. Those kinds of things, and we we end up writing a lot of guard code, as we call it, yeah, to sort centuries. of pr- yeah protect ourselves against the circumstances where callers may not know. Those those kinds of uh, obligations that are there. In fact, in code contracts, we call a lot, we call those things obligations, and they're um, typically, <clears throat> you know, undocumented or undocumentable obligations because the language we're working in just doesn't have a syntax for it. Yeah, and we get warnings if uh, you know if a variable has been undefined and uncreated, or an object has not been created and instantiated in the code. You know, C sharp or VBNet will give us a warning, but it but it really doesn't stop you from compiling or running. Right. And the, the goal with code contracts, uh, Microsoft code contracts in particular, is not to stop the compilation per se. You can, you can of course, you know, depending on your build uh, processes, your continuous integration processes, you can stop builds based on warnings from code contracts and what we call the static checker. Because code contracts really comes in two parts. There's a, there's a static checker, which will give you warnings at run t- at build time, and then there's the runtime components, which, as I mentioned before, are now part of .NET the .NET 4.0 framework. Um, so the runtime components are there for everyone, and the static checker is available in what's called the uh, not the standard edition, but the premium edition of the code contracts product. So. So much when you're talking through these things, I was really thinking how much of this is naturally convention and how much, you know, like staying in your lane on the highway is a great example of it's a convention that you're supposed to do this as opposed to it's specifically outlined in the contract. And that's a, you know, the, one of the really tough things that you is a challenge when you start beginning to think in terms of contracts. 
is I'll, I'll sort of put it into a more concrete example. If you if you use code contracts, uh, the Microsoft code contracts product at runtime, and you fail to uphold some some uh, clause in the contract, as it were, you'll get um, under some conditions or certain conditions what's called a contract exception. That's a type, but that type is actually marked internal to the to the code contracts runtime. So you can't put a catch statement in to say catch a contract exception. Which is, uh, it, it will be thrown as that type, but you can't catch it because that name is not actually exposed. Huh. Or that type isn't exposed. So, yeah, the idea behind that, the code contracts team thought that through pretty well. They, the idea was that in sort of separating convention from requirement, if someone really does violate a contract that that um, is sort of goes beyond convention, but is absolute requirement. You, you don't want to say catch a contract exception and then deal with it. You want the contract exception to be sort of uncatchable, and that to the extent that if you've done all the right work through testing, uh, either as a consumer of a compiled assembly that has contracts in it, or if it's your own sort of code base holistically. Uh, you you really shouldn't be thinking in terms of violating contracts at runtime because that should that should sort of be out of the way by that point. Right. Now there are other ways that you can sort of go beyond that to say I would prefer this to be more convention style. So for example, if you have these uh, bits of sentry or guard code like if then throw statements. Um, you can convert those to contracts. Uh, it's kind of brilliant the way that the Microsoft team put that together, in my opinion, because you can literally go in and mark the end of a whole string of if-then throw um, bits of guard code with an end contract block call at the end of those, and it'll convert those to what are known as, as preconditions. So now those preconditions become exposed um, by the static checker outside, so you can discover now what your obligations are about the contract. Whereas before, the guard code was really there just to serve the function you were calling, right? It was there to make sure the function that was being called just couldn't blow up. Now, though, if you can expose that outside the function, the caller can say, I'm not really allowed to pass null for this, or um, this index in this for this array has to be in range or has to be in the proper bounds before I can call it. It's, yeah, it's an interesting way of thinking about the problem because, of course, we've gotten a certain amount of this just by the the typical parameters that we're running anyway. You know, the data type checking is is innate, but it's it's very lawyerly, right? All of these other questions: could it yeah. be null? Right? What's the maximum minimums? Like, it, it, it's the kind of questions when you're working on a contract with a lawyer, they're going to ask. That's right. Yeah, you're putting some, you know, again, it goes back to the question I asked earlier, what is code? It is, in many cases, or many ways of thinking about it, it's intent, it's obligation, it is uh, boundary, and all of those are, th- uh, are sort of, poli- uh, not political, but legal terms that lawyers are likely to ask in the expression of a, of a legal contract as well. So... Uh, there's been some other products uh, that have done this in the past. I remember we talked about Spec Sharp. Man, that was uh, years more ago, wasn't it, Richard? Yeah, a couple years ago. A couple ago. years ago. And uh, this was sort of an API, if I remember correctly, because I never used it. But wasn't it sort of like a um, uh, you, you decorated your code with attributes to to implement contracts? There, there is some of that in Spec Sharp. Spec Sharp itself, as a language, has some some extensions to the, the base language from which it came, which is C-Sharp, um, to make it more Eiffel-like. Uh, Eiffel is a programming language that, from the very beginning, was designed as what's called a contract, uh, designed by contract language. And uh, the idea in Eiffel is that you establish preconditions. Those are really the things that should or must be true on the way into a function. Uh, post conditions, which are the things that are the function itself is guaranteeing on the way out, and then what are called invariants. And invariants do- doesn't mean immutability, or, although in ling- English it sort of sounds like that. It really just means that when a when a public method uh, is entered or exited, these things must be true. And that right. th- that list of things that you specify it, are your invariants. So it gives you a, it, it, you know, at, from the outside it sounds as though. Um, you know, this is just putting a sort of a layer of legalese on it. But when you start looking at the output of something like the static checker, which is available in the Code Contracts Premium Edition we talked about, 
then you, you start getting all sorts of static verification or static analysis information really deep into your program. So, for example, if you have one of these protocol-oriented objects that says you, you call the constructor, you call this initialized method, you have to call, call this function to do some sort of um, manipulation of the data, and then you can access this property once you've done the first three steps. Well, you've essentially described a state machine. And if you can actually code your, your object as a state machine and put in states that are measurable by the static, the static uh, analysis engine, then you can actually see the warning so that if you constructed the object, called initialize, and then tried to read the property without calling that, that sort of manipulation or computational step, you'll get a warning to say there's no way that you could have reached the, the computed state to call this property. And that's, that's brilliant if you think about it because it's actually looking deep inside your code to see the branching and the, and the calls into your code could not have allowed you to have reached the state to make this call legally. That's cool. Yeah. I, I, you just blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> that is cool. I mean, we do, we do this sort of thing when we're coding too. You know, you, you, you write in a, you're writing a subroutine or a, or a class or something and, it, you know, maybe it's a private class that is only being called by your code and, you're thinking to yourself, well, this is I'm calling this. There's no reason to do any kind of crazy checking for nulls or or any, you know, this stuff because I know I'm going to call this correctly. But uh, but then you've got the big bad world out there where user input, uh, you know, and everybody knows that w- if there is anything a user can possibly type to screw up your program, they will. You know, input is evil. Yeah, it's not just you, too. I mean, some right. new person might come onto your team that doesn't know the protocol. Right. And they, they try, you know, logically looking at the, the object, the reference material on the object they have, they're making some assumptions about how they need to make these calls right. from the protocol's perspective. And it's easy to make a mistake for a new person on the team. So when you say it's us, it's my code, it could just be the person sitting in the office right next to you making that mistake with your code. Yeah, not absolutely. necessarily the someone evil, <laughs> right? right. Uh, and, and that's my point. Yeah. My point is that we make these assumptions, but but uh, you know, oftentimes you need to have these code contracts in code that you're not necessarily that you you don't necessarily think is uh, you know would be subject to bad input or that's output true. for that matter. Yeah, just for that reason. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. So, so tell us about the, uh, uh, how, how it's implemented with Microsoft. What, is there a product name for this research project, Code Contracts, or is it just part of .NET? How, how do we use it? Well, yeah, so the, the runtime tooling uh, is available in the framework 4.0. Um, there is also um, some tooling that's available for Visual Studio, and uh, tooling that is available for what, I, what we call the static checker, which is a static analysis or verification engine, uh, which is part of, um, there's a command line tool, there's a set of command line tools, and this Visual Studio tooling that's available. If you, uh, if you go to the Microsoft Code Contracts site on the dev, at DevLabs, um, well, let me back up a bit and give you a bit of background. De- DevLabs is a, a portion of the uh, Microsoft Research Center, and they are made up of a bunch of different groups, um, and they have members that sort of cross groups, too. They have a, a particular selection of them called the Research and Software Engineering Group, or RISE, as it's called. And um, a lot of the work that's been done on code contracts has come through DevLabs out of the RISE project, so all things software engineering oriented. Hmm. And they've been working for a couple of years to uh, produce code contracts. It's finally now in the 4.0 framework that we see the, the runtime tooling has appeared. So it's now moved from Microsoft.contracts.dll, that assembly, into MS CoreLog. So it's actually part of the core library now. Wow. 
that's that's available uh, in the framework. If you're working with 3.5, the framework 3.5, you can go to the Microsoft Code Contract site and download the tooling and that Microsoft.contracts DLL assembly, and just include that with your project and get the same runtime support. So it's it's there for 3.5, but it's just sort of baked into the framework for 4.0. Okay. So it's just a class I need to reference here, and then I'm, I'm, how am I constructing these contracts? What is it? Am I just writing the code, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because you know, as you said before, with Spec Sharp and some other approaches, especially in other platforms um, like Contract for J for Java, the Java space, that there, you know, there are sort of metadata approaches to this. Where, for right. example, I can mark a class with some metadata to say. This this is a requirement, like a precondition, or this is a postcondition that should hold true on the way out of a function. Mm-hmm. The the code contracts team at Microsoft really they toyed with that approach and did some prototyping around it, but they sort of settled on the idea of putting actual code into the functions. So in the system diagnostics namespace, there's a new a uh, new namespace contracts, and then there's a, a static class in there called contract. So for example, if you want to create a precondition. You would go into a function that you want to place the precondition in, and you would say contract dot requires, and then put in some Boolean expression. So, and that Boolean expression typically is going to relate to uh, some kind of argument validation, like this integer ABC that comes in as a parameter uh, should be greater than or equal to zero. And it's not just going to simply throw an exception when uh, when a contract fails. Does it uh, allow you to make a call like a, with an event handler or something? There are there are a lot of options there, mainly because you know there's legacy code that you'll want to go back and instrument that may be using uh, sentry or guard code, the if then throw style guard code. Right. Um, and, and you might want to just go in. You have a whole block of them. Uh, say you have a whole block of those if then throw statements. You can mark that with with an end contract block. So you'd literally say contract dot end contract block at the end of that section, and it would turn all of those. That legacy style um, sentry code into preconditions. Oh, cool! Yeah. So, so what happens is at runtime, if you decide to use the runtime tooling, um, then you'll you'll get it on the legacy style coding that you did. You'll it'll still throw the the exceptions uh, appropriately, but it will also expose those as preconditions. If you decide not to use the runtime tooling, then it essentially just evaporates. And that's that's one of the key things about code contracts that's kind of interesting. If you turn off runtime tooling support, all of your code contracts, whether you're saying contract.requires or contract.insures for a post condition, all of that emits no intermediate language. So it just evaporates at So it's runtime. just part of testing uh, uh, in a debug mode. It would be either, really. Um, it could be in a deep. You could turn it on in the debug build, like the runtime support, or right. if you have access to the premium edition, you could just run it purely for the static checker. Because remember, the static checker is the one that is doing that deep compile time analysis of your code to do those really cool things, like saying this object isn't in the right state for you to be making this call. Right. So literally, you could just depend on the static checker if you wanted, and not even use the runtime tooling. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, an interesting approach to how do you want to do this as opposed to, so that it doesn't Im- impact the code, but you can ship it as part of the production app as well. You can. And, and you know, my advice is so that you, you're not uh, testing and debugging one set of code paths and shipping another set is, you know, I typically like to turn the runtime support on or off holistically. <laughs> um, right. Just so that I have, uh, you know, I'm not exercising different code paths during debug and tests versus runtime but oh what could go wrong (laughs) yeah i mean beside the fact that you know for testing for example if you have the runtime support on for testing like unit testing and a contract exception is thrown you can't even catch the thing right right i mean you can catch an exception and then sort of look at its name which is kind of cheesy if you think about it but you you can say you know uh exception dot get type dot name and if it's equal to contract exception then uh Do some kind of assertion in your unit test about that, but and as cheesy as that sounds, I've done it. <laughs> but the reality is, uh, you've got some some pretty tough choices to make once you start doing this. It's um, it's very cool on the surface about the kinds of things that can get done with code contracts, but it is kind of overwhelming or daunting when you start thinking about all the things you have to think about to get your testing done correctly. 
and you know, for example, how your the runtime support in your production application might actually throw exceptions or not. So um, a lot of choices to make. Yeah, I, I get a sense here, and I, it hasn't crystallized for me. Of this is just a this is a different way to do development. That you you start talking very axiomatically about how we're going to approach testing and deployment with contracts in play. Well, you know, for the most part, contracts. Well, let me put it this way: contracts are very new for most people. I've been working with code contracts from Microsoft's perspective for a perspective for about a year and a half. And that was really because I started working with Spec Sharp and also was looking very closely at the Eiffel language um, along my my pragmatic programmer journey of learning one new language per year. Right. Um, Eiffel was that one for me about three years ago. And um, I, I started comparing and contrasting the features of Eiffel, then with Spec Sharp, then with code contracts um, on languages like C Sharp. And... Um, I've got quite a bit of experience thinking through how to make those kinds of things work, how to build a good, you know, test environment, a good uh, structured production rollout. But the the reality is when you first jump in and you look at very subtle differences in the API, like contract.requires comes in two flavors. There's a uh, a generic version which takes an exception type and will throw that exception type at runtime, but only if you use the runtime tooling. Whereas if you write sentry code and mark it with an end contract block, you get it in both cases. So you, you have to start thinking then very carefully about, well, which version do I want to use? Which version of the precondition do I want to use to make this thing work the way I want? And then you've got issues related to, you know, I'm going to build this thing. I'm going to compile an assembly and give it to someone else in compiled form. Well, where are my contracts going to be? Are they going to be embedded in the code? Or do I want to have another way to convey that to to them so that they can make that decision for themselves about whether they want to enforce contracts or not. What if you in, what if you inherit from a base class that implements a contract? If you if you in, uh, inheritance does work with um, with ab, abstract and base classes that you inherit from. Um, so you basically you'll you'll borrow the contracts down the chain. Okay. And co- code contracts does a very good job of sort of stitching together the constituent parts of the of the contract to give you a holistic contract per per API call. So it'll actually take portions of a contract uh, at one layer and sort of merge them together with the portions from another uh, layer to give you uh, a more holistic view of the contract on a given API. Yeah, it does a lot of runtime well, rewriting, as you can tell, and it's, the static checker is is doing going pretty deep there as well. It's interesting because you don't, you know, if you're using like debug assert, that you you know you'd have to sprinkle those in every in every class, wouldn't you? You would, yeah. And the nice thing here is with inheritance, you can sort of write it at one layer of a of an API uh, of a hierarchy, a class hierarchy, and you get it everywhere else. The other thing is with interface-based programming, you know, uh, if you – one of the first problems that you run into with code contracts if you're new to the space is you, you're tempted to take some interface member that you're implementing on your class and put contracts on it. And you'll get a warning that says, this is an interface implementation. You can't put a contract here. Well, the the reason that is is because for interface-based development – the idea is that the contract should be on the interface. So right. code contracts uses something like ASP.NET MVC does with the, the buddy classes for the, um, the data validators. Uh, you guys familiar with that? Yeah. So the idea there is that you, in ASP.NET MVC is you write this buddy class, and then you can, you can essentially add some metadata to the, to the class that you're trying to validate. Well, Code Contracts does something very similar in that if you create an interface that you want to put a contract on, you write a, a buddy class, for lack of a better term, and you put the contracts in the buddy class, and then you have attributes that mark it as being the contracts for that interface. And then any interface that comes along from that point in the future uh, will automatically inherit those contracts. Yeah, okay, cool. I, I'm I'm just concerned of how much litter there is in our code when all of this is in place. <laughs> what do you mean by litter? Well, just that, you know, this is plumbing, really. You know, it's just, it's important plumbing, but it's just when I'm when I go to read someone's code and they're using all the code contract stuff, is it how challenging is it going to be to sort one from the other? 
So I guess the question, that's a great question, but I would have to sort of get you to refine it by saying how often are you reading code versus reading some other documentation that's been produced for the code? Yeah, I mean, more often than not, you're looking at the code, right? Okay. So one thing that helps is that all of the contract data is at the top or the contract code is at the top. So it's sort of tempting to think that if we have a post condition, like saying this function promises to return to do this, um, that you would put that near the bottom of the function, maybe just before a return call. Yeah, which is what I would presume. Yeah, but it's not true. Actually, in fact, when you when you make a promise about a post condition, you put that at the top of the function with all of the other pre all of the other preconditions and post post conditions. So you say contract that requires, and you have your first requirement contract contract that requires another requirement. Then you'll say contract that ensures, and then you'll say something like contract that ensures contract dot result of integer equals this. Um, or the result of an output uh, variable equals this. So you can set constraints on the post conditions and the preconditions all in one block. So it literally puts all of that contract data at the top of the function. Well, and it's almost like it's part of the description of the function at that point. In fact, that's a great way to think about it. I really see my contract as documentation more than anything else today. Right. Because I, I don't honestly, I don't turn on the runtime checker as much uh, as I rely on the static analysis. And reading the code now, um, so reading the code, you know, you, you see this block at the top, and you can you can literally see everything that has to be true on the way in, and everything that will be true on the way out, all in one section. Yeah, in some ways, it is information, and this code will make more sense if you know these bounds. Well, certainly, um, some of those things are tough to know. Yeah, and that's true for most. When you get into those API-specific ones, the ones where you're dealing with an object that acts like a state machine, yeah. it's very difficult to sort of discern that because it's sort of spread out. You yeah. have to look, for example, in the that that final property that you would read to see, oh, the state must be you know computed before you could actually then go back to the the computation function or the initializer or the constructor to know these are the steps I need to follow. So it's it's good documentation, but when it gets into those complex, more API-driven ones, it's very difficult to know that. Well, and how many times have you looked at a function like that and said, well, uh, what the hell are you passing in here? <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the fact that you've essentially got a description of what the expected pass-in is and what the expected output is gives you an awful lot of info about what this code should be doing before you've even looked at the code. Yeah. That's true. So, again, I, I see it as documentation as much as it is um, – you know, providing any kind of runtime or even static analysis support. I mean, right. you know, as a developer, if I read that, if I can read what all of the input and output requirements are, those obligations, as we call them, uh, right there in one block, it's really helpful to see them all in one place. So do you recommend that everybody go out and uh, download this and, and use it and sort of as a as a new way of you know, error checking or not error checking, but you know, if you're doing if throw kind of sentry code in your in your applications, is there any? Is I guess what I'm saying is, is there any situation in which it's not uh, would not be helpful? Well, I'm sure. I mean, if if I had the Microsoft folks on the line, I'd say yes. You always use it. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. <laughs> But the reality is, uh, the code contracts are going to provide value on, I think, larger bases of code that have been really effectively modularized, modularized to the extent that one individual piece that you're looking at is not really discernible. Its, its purpose isn't necessarily discernible in the larger set of the code, uh, so that if you had a junior developer, on the team, or if you, you know, if you were to ship a portion of that in compiled form to another business unit and they had to use it, they might not know what all of the constraints are simply because 
you know, it's not monolithic. If you had a, a, a like a monolithic code base and it was fairly small to medium size, you're probably not going to get a tremendous amount of value out of code contracts. But it's it's those situations where you're you're you know you're going to have disparate sort of entities looking at something and not necessarily recognizing what their obligations are because you've done a, a very good job of modularizing it and you can't tell necessarily what this chunk of code is all about when you're trying to use it or how it might be interacting with the rest of the code base. Yeah, okay. So, Kevin, I get the sense that this is a new way to do documentation on our applications. Is this able to replace other techniques? I wouldn't say replace as much as sort of augment. Mm -hmm. So if you're using XML, comment, documentation, and Visual Basic or C Sharp today, you might find that, um, you know, if you go into the Visual Studio tooling, and you uh, check the, a checkbox to say produce XML documentation, it will essentially add metadata to the documentation about the contracts on your codes. In the same way that today if you say you accept an integer and a string and an array of you know some type, that's documented in the XML documentation comments. Right. Uh, you can now further say this integer X must be between 0 and 100. Um, this string uh, reference may not be null. Uh, this its string reference may not be null and may not be an empty string, you know, things like that. Right. So your documentation tool can now extract more info to sort of build the placeholders for the documentation around the API. Sure. Yeah. And Sandcastle, um, you'll, you guys are familiar with the Sandcastle project? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Sandcastle hasn't been updated in some time, but there is an update available for code contracts, which will essentially allow Sandcastle to pick up the new metadata related to code contracts and build it into the output, uh, the output HTML or compiled HTML files it produces. Cool. So yeah, very this cool. This is getting further in that automated documentation. Yeah, it's it's realization that code contracts for a lot of people, at least initially, will be more about the documentation or documenting aspects than it is about runtime checking or even the static uh, verification and analysis tools. You might choose to use those things, but you might, as a team, decide to use them in steps. So, for example, you could uh, put the contract requires, ensures, and then the invariance into your code today and, and literally just depend on it from a documentation standpoint for what gets generated in by Sandcastle or whatever tool you're using to build your, uh, your help files for your, for your system. Nice. Uh, tomorrow you might decide, you know, I'm really going to start paying attention to those warnings that the static, um, the static checker might emit to tell me about hidden problems that could be lurking in my code. And then beyond that, you might say, well, I'm going to turn on that safety net below my code in terms of the, uh, in the form of the runtime checker so that the, the runtime engine can be there sort of assisting me in, uh, in catching issues related to contracts at runtime. That's cool. Um, what about, how does, how do these tools impact stuff like continuous integration? Can I break the build mm. using code contracts? You can break the build, yeah, and it depends on the tooling that you're using for your build. You know, if you're using MS Build or, or uh, something like Nant and you're promoting warnings to errors and you're, you decide to include the static checker as part of your, uh, your build process, the static checker doesn't generate errors, it generates warnings. So if you haven't promoted warnings to errors, you probably won't break the build. But if, you, if you're like most shops, like the ones that I work in, we uh, prom- we have promoted or uh, turned errors warnings into errors, and we you'd certainly break the build if you ha- use the static checker, and you haven't properly turned off the uh, uh, the copious warnings that might come from it. All right, Kevin, I'm I'm a little blown away here because I know we looked at some of this stuff around Spec Sharp and so forth, but I get the sense now that this is in .NET 4.0 that this may become a best practice for a lot of development now. I hope it does, uh, especially, again, those larger shops that are sharing uh, code that's been highly modularized or sharing compiled code between uh, various organizations where they would benefit from conveying more information, more contractual information about their APIs and subsystems. On smaller, small to medium teams, I don't see that. Yeah, especially as code gets older. If You, you know, here's the, the customer module that a half a dozen different apps depend on. That's the sort of thing you want to emit really detailed responses when you're trying to work against it. 
Well, you know, we had, we didn't talk much about invariance, but that's where aging code bases really benefit from invariance more than anything else, in my opinion. So if I say, for example, this on this class, this value, uh, this member may not be outside of this particular range, and then some some circumstance comes along in the future where someone tries to set that value on exit, you'll it'll actually catch it. So, you know, you'll see, you know, a year from now, some some person on the team modifies this code base to say, well, we were returning this 0 to 100, but now we'll return minus 1 as a flag to say that there was an error instead of right. throwing an exception, for example. Well, if you've said in the invariant that it's got to be, you know, between and including 0 to 100, and they decide to return minus 1, it'll break the contract. It breaks it from the implementer side. So who knows how many people are, are depending on it being zero to a hundred. Right. And it makes you actually stop when you make changes to an older code base and think about those kinds of changes that you're making. Who might be depending on the fact that we've said all along that this value will not be negative one? Right, right. Yeah, it's very interesting that this is for someone dealing with multi generational code and multidiscipline code, this could be a huge advantage. Yep. Yeah, I think, and again, on, on medium to larger teams with uh, what I call highly modularized code, that looking at an individual bit of code, you you have a, a difficult time discerning necessarily how it fits in or what your obligations are. If you're working on a monolithic base on a smaller project, I don't see it adding as much value, but it could. I think uh, in terms of best practices, we often see that a lot of those best practices tend to add more value on larger scale projects anyway. Uh, Kevin, you do a, you'll do a lot of stuff here, you know, reading your bios, it goes on and on, and I don't know how you have time to do all this, but you speak at a lot of uh, places and you do a lot of writing. What's, uh, what's coming up for you? What are you working on? Well, besides um, all the work, I'm doing this 14-part series on code contracts now on my blog. I'm about halfway done with it, um, with the ones that have been published. The remaining ones are at various stages in the pipeline. The, the last one in that mix uh, actually is a, a podcast, an interview with the Code Contracts team. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, I've also got the um, the DevLink conference coming up in August, mm-hmm. where I've got uh, two talks. One is um, what the math geeks don't want you to know about F Sharp, and then awesome. of course a, a talk <laughs> on code contracts. <laughs> what don't the math geeks want you to know about F Sharp? Well, it's it's an interesting way of. Uh, I originally titled the the uh, presentation F sharp by example, because the the problem I've seen with F sharp teaching and training in the space so far is that people want to blow your mind with F sharp. They they want to sort of right. uh, cram information in with the sort of express intent of making gaskets blow, <laughs> and. <laughs> The, the problem with that approach is that people walk away with it with the gaskets blown, but they, ne- they don't really have an idea of how to apply it to a real-world problem that they right. have. And so the original talk was called F-sharp by example because the idea is I want to show here are some concrete things that I can do in Visual Basic.net and C-sharp, and they're real problems that you face. Uh, for example, taking a social network graph from Facebook and merging it with the social network graph from Twitter and finding uh, points of commonality. It's a, it turns out to be a highly, for example, highly parallelizable algorithm. But in C-sharp, even with something as brilliant as the task parallel library, it still takes a, quite a bit of engineering and thinking about how to break that problem down and actually code something that will take those two social graphs and mix them together. Right, in F sharp, it's like two lines of code, because yeah. literally, you know, when you get to the point where you have higher order functions and you have lazy evaluation, not just list level lazy evaluation like we have sort of with Link, but real true lazy evaluation in the language, and and this this modularity again that comes by being able to sort of glue together functions and programs at a higher level, then then you can start to express problems in very little code that also becomes highly parallelizable because I can take those two, those two social graphs and say, you know, every time you're sort of computing through merging these social graphs together, create new data structures. You know, if, if you need to mutate something, make a copy and mutate it on the way. And then by, by treating it as more of a chain of functions, 
sort of returning to a core that has the ability to do assignments and create side effects and do flow of control, you get a really powerful uh, mix there. There are people in the F-sharp space that, that don't believe in language integration. They think F-sharp can do it all. And I'm, I'm clearly not in that camp. I think, you know, I see a lot of room for uh, programs that are based on C-sharp and visualbasic.net at the core and then have these arms, these spokes that shoot out that are purely functional. And they return these functional results of things like merging social graphs. And the combination of those two let me write a framework in a language I love and use every day like C-sharp and then express really, really tough problems with a beautifully concise and parallelizable syntax like F-sharp allows me to do it. So getting those examples out there is really important, and that's why I say it's what the math geeks don't want you to know because they're, they're all talking about math. They're all talking right. about computational things that you have to do with F-sharp, and that's just not the case. Right. Okay. Well, uh, is there anything last minute you want to throw out there before we wrap it up? No, I think uh, that's that's great. I mean, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, code contracts and a bit about F-sharp. I am currently working on a book for Manning, and uh, we're in the process of, of thinking through now uh, kind of an inflection point about how to make that book more um, more example-oriented, as I sort of mentioned just now how to yeah. make it speak to those people that really need to find a way to get to an understanding of F-sharp that's not about, um, you know, catamorphisms and universal computers and monads. And, and that's all right. great stuff. But regular people that have, like, regular jobs to do, how can you actually use F-sharp to get that work done? So that book uh, from Manning is uh, is in the works now. We're, we're as, as I said, an inflection point thinking about um, how to uh, structure it more along those lines. Okay. Well, Kevin, thanks. It's been fascinating. And yes, you have blown our minds. I apologize for that. That's <laughs> <laughs> not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. And we'll see you next time, dear listener, on .NET Rocks. <laughs> .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a